0: This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning, all. Thanks for braving the uh, coming storms today and being here early this morning. It's good to see you. This is our uh, second week of our class called Real Change, Becoming More Like Jesus in Everyday Life. And we think of this class as having a couple of different... uh, Benefits and trajectories, and one of those is for us to, as Christians, to think through uh, change in our lives. Um, we all need to change and be transformed into the image of Christ, and so we just want to, for ourselves and our personal uh, Christian lives, to think through um, battling through change and working toward change in the in the grace. Of Christ, and then of course the other thing we want to accomplish, we hope to accomplish a little bit, is helping us think through how to help others change. So, as Christians, we are all, in a sense, Christian counselors, aren't we? Uh, we are all, as as uh, members of the body of Christ, participating together in helping others grow. Into Christ, we all have gifts that the Lord has given us, and we all are called and responsible to engage with others and helping them change and so we hope that this class will will work in both of those directions, helping us grow in Christ and helping us think through how we might help others i 'm certain we all know others who are experiencing struggles, difficulties, um, temptations, failures, and the Lord can use us to Uh, help them grow as well so let me pray for us and then we will start let me just say this is like i said this is the second class in this class or the second week of this class and uh, we're going to do four weeks in all next week we will not meet for this class because of easter sunday we're going to take a week off and then we'll come back for the following two weeks so uh, put that on your calendars and be ready for that all right well let's pray Father, thank you for your grace this morning to us again. Thank you for making us alive and and giving us the opportunity to know you this morning. We know that that is why you have given us life and breath today, so that we might seek you and find you. And Lord, I pray that you would allow this time we have together to be a time where we understand your word more deeply. And not only understand your word, Lord, but where we apply your word to our lives, to our hearts, to our minds, to everything that we do as Christians. Lord, we need your strength. We, we feel that we are dependent on your grace this morning and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And uh, we want to change. We want to grow and we pray that you would change us and that you would help us to know better how to strengthen others to grow into the image of Christ as well. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, last week Jeff uh, shared um, with us about how God is changing us, God desires to change us and he's changing us through a relationship with Jesus Christ like 2 Corinthians 3:18 makes clear we all with unveiled with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to another so the christian life is about change it's about Uh, Not being who we used to be, as God causes us to be born again, and He unites us to His Son, and He enables us to gaze uh, upon His glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And it's through gazing on the glory of Christ we are changed. We become what we behold. Right? You know, uh, as we always say, you are what you eat, or you are what whatever you know those sayings go. Well, in Scripture. Uh, you are what you worship. You are, you become what you behold. And so the more, we, um, the more we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the more we become like Jesus Christ. That's a strong biblical principle. And the opposite is true. The Psalms, uh, for example, make clear that if we worship things that are not God, if we worship idols, then we become like those things that we worship. So the Christian life is a life of, of changing from one degree of glory to another and sometimes that happens in fits and starts, but nevertheless, we are not who we used to be and we are becoming more or less and less what we used to be by the grace of God. So God changes us through our relationship with Jesus Christ and God changes us uh, through our relationship with others. Jeff spoke also last week about uh, in the Christian life, we all have what, uh, what he was calling heat that comes into our lives. All people who are human beings who live in this world have various types of heat that come into our lives. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that God takes away the heat from Christians. This is not your best life now. And uh, it's, Scripture does not come anywhere close to teaching that at all. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is how we respond to the heat that comes. Uh, Do we respond by throwing in the towel? Do we respond by distrusting God? Uh, Do we respond by um, uh, anxiety and fear and those kinds of things? We'll talk more about that as we go along. Or do we learn as Christians to respond to the heat by trusting God it's the person who trusts God in the midst of the heat who becomes that tree that is planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither. So you've got two trees. Uh, Jeff talked about the, the trees last week. Uh, and the sun shining on the trees is the same, right? The heat comes to both trees. But it's what's underneath. It's the root that matters. If the root is in dry dry ground, dry land, then it will uh, not grow and bear fruit. If the tree is planted and firmly rooted by streams of water, then it will bear fruit. And so um, the point is as Christians, when we're seeking to change, what we should not expect is that there will be no heat in the Christian life. There absolutely will be. Remember when Jesus was uh, doing the parable of the sower, he talked about the seed that is sown on the rocky ground and Uh, it it springs up quickly like someone who responds to the word of God with joy right away but when the heat comes and the persecution comes which it inevitably will then since it has no root then it dies quickly. So again the kind of seed that, that bears fruit and prospers in that parable of the sower is not the kind that has no heat because God takes it away it's the kind that is able to withstand the heat because its roots are deep. So that's, that's sort of uh, some of the things that Jeff was speaking about last week. And we know God is changing us. We know we're going to encounter heat. And so um, how should we think about this and respond to it? Let me just say a couple of theological things here as we think about uh, change in the Christian life. Uh, One thing I want to just mention that's, I think, important for us Christians to realize is that we live in what really is an overlap of ages. We live in an overlap of ages. In other words, we we live in a world now that is marked by sin, it's marked by brokenness and those kinds of things, but we also live in, in a world in which God has broken into history by sending his son Jesus Christ and in so doing he has brought the powers of the age to come into the present time. You remember as Jesus was going about doing things he would say things like if I cast out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or even when he says uh, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe this good news. What he's suggesting there is that is that the final age, the powers of the age to come have already broken into the present through the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in this way, we live in an overlap of the ages. We're still living in this world that's broken by sin. Uh, That's, as as Paul puts in Romans 8, is subjected to futility because of sin. Yet, at the same time, the powers of the age to come have become accessible to us through what God has done. You'll hear theologians oftentimes talk about this as the already and the not yet. So the already is the fact that God has brought the kingdom grace into the present. Kingdom promises have been fulfilled in the present Yet those things have not yet, the kingdom has not yet finally been consummated. We're still waiting uh, for the final consummation. Peter says in Acts chapter three that there are some things that are available to us already because of what God has done in Christ. There are still things though that the prophets promised that we're still waiting to be finished And this, understanding this kind of concept in Scripture is important for our thinking about change in the Christian life. What I would suggest is that it's important to remember both of these realities as we're thinking about the Christian life. For example, it's important for us to to remember that the powers of the kingdom and the age to come have already uh, brought conquering and victory so Jesus has come he has lived his uh, perfect life before his father he has laid down his life for sins on the cross he has risen from the dead already not only has he risen from the dead but he has ascended to the right hand of the father and taken up his throne as the Davidic king forever and he has poured out his spirit on the church all that stuff has already happened And that has huge implications for our thinking about change because we can look back to the past as Christians. When we have trusted Christ, we can look back to the past and realize that God has already in Christ conquered our sin. He has already conquered death. He has already conquered Satan. Those things have already happened. The victory has already been won. And why that's important for our thinking about change is because as Christians, we're not fighting this battle as though we're not sure whether we're going to make it. You know, we're hoping to make it to the end, perhaps, uh, but we're not sure that 's not the way it is, no, we can look back and say i have already I have already been justified in jesus Christ i have uh, death has already been conquered in my life because of what Jesus has done. Sin has already been conquered. The victory has already been won by Jesus Christ. This is uh, not a hopeless um, battle that we 're in it 's not even a battle that we just hope might get there because things seem to be going well or whatever. It's, uh, God wants us to think of this as though the victory has already been won. Uh, The decisive blow has already been struck to sin, Satan, and everything else. So as Paul will say, um, since we have been justified, notice, notice, He's using the perfect tense when he says this, which means it's already happened in the past and it has ongoing effects in the present. Since we have been justified in Christ, therefore we have peace with God. Right now, we're not hoping to achieve it someday. We're not waiting for the final consummation to have peace. No, Paul can say, even though we still live in this time when there's a not yet we still can know that we've already been justified in Christ. That gives us a lot of confidence for the battle, gives us a lot of hope for the battle. Again, what we can say is since Jesus has already poured out the Spirit on His people in the church, we can say that... um, I have a guarantee, you know, as Paul puts it so many times, God has given us the spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance, meaning we already have that spirit of adoption as sons. We already have this guarantee of our inheritance. So yes, while we're still looking in faith to more that's coming in the future, God has already given us his spirit of adoption, his spirit of the inheritance, the guarantee of our inheritance. And if he has given his spirit to our mortal bodies, then we can know for certain that he will raise our mortal bodies from the dead. And so I say, I say all this to say, since this overlap of the ages is happening, since the already has already happened, then we're not engaging in this struggle to change without confidence and hope. We're engaging in a str- struggle to change uh, with, some, with a victory that has already been won by Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I was, uh, count, I was counseling a man in the church where I was pastoring. And I, I, he was struggling with uh, lack of assurance. Uh, he was struggling with a lot of uh, anxiety over his sin and fear over his sin, and and as I was counseling him for a number of weeks, I didn't get the sense that he was a man who was just living in sin flippantly. It wasn't that at all. Quite the opposite, actually. But yet he was struggling with lack of assurance and worry about his sin, and and uh, he would come into me sometimes with uh, he came into me one day with a sheet of paper filled front and back with where he had been listing uh, all of the 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 sins that he had struggled with and and things like this, he was attempting to, if he thought, if he could really think through all of the sin that he was struggling with and dealing with, and all those kinds of things, then he would uh, be able to think about how to change it and and get better and not have these worries. And you know, I was reminded of the old, you know, famous quote. I think it was Richard, Richard Sibbs, perhaps, who said, "For every one look we take at our sin, we should take ten looks at Christ," uh, because the reality is, yes, it is possible to be to be harmfully flippant with sin and not to think about it uh, enough, but I got the sense with this particular man that that was not his struggle. His struggle was a lack of looking at the finished work of Jesus Christ on his behalf and placing his confidence in that and placing his gaze on that, right? Because... Uh, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So what he needed to do was open his eyes and look full into the wonderful face of Jesus Christ, look to the cross of Jesus Christ, look to this finished work of Christ um, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his his authority and kingship right now, his right now seated at the right hand of the father making intercession for our sins. So who can bring any charge against us when we are in Christ? He may fill a sheet of paper front and back with his sins, but who can bring any charge against us when God has given his only son to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to bear all of our sins away And is now at the right hand of the Father pleading our our cause. You know, it would actually be unjust for God to bring our sins against us when we have trusted Christ. It would be unjust for him to do so, and it would be a dishonor to the worth of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if he counted our sins against us, wouldn't it? And this is a problem with trying to engage with change by doing it that way, by not not understanding the already well enough. It is actually a dishonor to the the sacrifice of the Son of God. This is what I think of every time I read 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. This is a familiar passage. Um, But this is really what what John is saying here. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So notice what John is saying there. If he does not forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, then he is unfaithful and unjust because it's, it is the infinite worth of the Son of God who has paid for those sins. So, it is a, a really a lack of faith and trust in the worth of the sacrifice of the Son of God when we engage with sins like this particular man was. And so, uh, I was able to help him through that and I think... Um, this gospel was, uh, ended up being life-giving to him. But what I'm saying here is that we, we need to remember both of these poles, okay? The already and the not yet. It's already true that Jesus has won the victory over sin and Satan and death. It's already happened, so we can uh, look to the future in hope. However, we can make another mistake in perhaps thinking uh, that there's not a not yet, right? We still live in the overlap of the ages. We still live in the time when it's not all finished. We do not have uh, our resurrected bodies, our, our perfected uh, lives. As long as we still live in this overlap of the ages, yes, we can look back at what Christ has already accomplished and know that nothing can change that. Uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But we're also still living in this overlap so that we are not perfected yet. We still are battling against uh, sin and the flesh and the devil. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's, he's shooting his fiery darts at us Uh, which is why we need to take up the armor, you see. And the New Testament, even though it knows that the victory has already been won in Christ, it never says that this is a lazy river of faith. No, Paul calls this a fight of faith, always, right? So you see what I mean when I talk about this already and not yet, it's important to remember both of these realities as we're thinking about change in the Christian life. Or I should say, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he says, uh, I'm sorry, that's not right, verse 11. Uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now here he's talking to people who live in the already Christ has already forgiven. Christ has already poured out his spirit. Yet, we, he says we still are sojourners and exiles. That means it's not yet. We have not yet gotten to our final promised land. We are sojourners and exiles as long as we live in this overlap of the ages. And on top of that, not only are we sojourners, sojourners and exiles, but uh, the passions of the flesh still wage war against the soul. It almost seems, there, there's this tension there that uh, seems a bit strange. Christ has already conquered, yet we're still waging war. And how can that be the case? And there are a number of passages of Scripture that, um, you know, that, that indicate that this tension is always there as long as we live in this overlap of the ages. One of the places where this happens is in Romans chapter 6. You read a passage like Romans chapter 6 and you might think either Paul is crazy, he's lost his mind and he's contradicting himself or he has a keen understanding of this already but not yet because sometimes Paul talks as though the victory has already been won yet we're still fighting the battle. And how can that be the case? So, for example, in Romans chapter 6, he'll say things like um, that in in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he'll say something like, we know that our old self, our old sinful flesh was crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So our sinful flesh has already been crucified with Jesus Christ. It is dead and buried. And then if you go on, say to verse nine, he says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Then he says in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's the already. Your old sinful flesh has been crucified with Christ and you have been raised with Christ to live anew. That has already happened. But notice what he says in verse 12, right after saying what he just said in verse 11. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness and so forth. So you see, is Paul crazy? The sinful flesh has been crucified. It's dead and gone. We've been raised with Christ to this new life. So sin no longer has dominion over us. That's what he goes on there to say in verse uh, 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. But in the midst of that very statement, he says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. In other words, strive against sin. And you might think, well, I thought you said it was already crucified, so why don't I need to be striving against it? And the the reason Paul can talk this way is because he realizes this overlap of the ages. And we've got to realize both as well because it it, realizing both will keep us from despair when we're battling against the struggles we experience in life. We have this grace that's been given it'll also keep it'll also keep us grounded, realizing that number one, um, I'm not going to live a sinful life in this world. There are going to be fits and starts, there are going to be battles, there are going to be struggles okay um, now this Let's say uh, this material that we are um, leaning on here, this book, Real Change, um, they mention seven wrong ways here of responding to the heat, responding to the temptation, responding to this war that's waging while we still live in this present world, in this present time. And uh, let me mention those real quickly because... um, uh, perhaps we all fit into one or more of these categories sometimes when we are in the midst of the battle, the fight of faith. Seven wrong ways to respond. The first one they mention is worry. You fret, you go over and over the circumstances, you try to think through every possibility and come up with your own way of dealing the, with the problem. This may have been one way that my friend uh, at the previous A church I was at uh, was dealing with his battle with sin sometimes. Worry and worry. Being consumed with the problem so you can't shut your mind off of it. That's one way. Uh, I think our, our culture is probably more prone to this second way, which is escapism. We try to anesthetize ourselves so we don't have to feel the heat, or we don't have to acknowledge um, how we have responded poorly or wrongly to the battle that we are fighting. So sometimes this can be, uh, we can anesthetize ourselves with things like drug and alcohol abuse, but perhaps... um, and more common amongst us would be things like overworking or, or overeating or more so being online a lot, being on the phone a lot, being on the internet a lot, or really almost anything. We all have our own ways of anesthetizing ourselves so that we distract ourselves from the battle or distract ourselves from uh, the struggles that we're having with certain things. A third way they mention is denial. Uh, you try to ignore the problem, pretend you're okay, uh, and hope that if others believe you are fine, that that will somehow make it true. Uh, so yes, sometimes as we're struggling and perhaps failing to, um, to change in a particular area, we suppress it in a way that we hope others don't notice and uh, just try to hope it will go away rather than deal, dealing with it head on. A fourth way they mention is anger and blame. Get angry at others. You blame other people or other circumstances or even God. Blame God sometimes when we get in the midst of these uh, battles that we feel like we're not Winning. Maybe you lash out at those you feel are responsible for your bad response. If only so-and-so had not done this, then I would never have reacted the way I did, you know. Uh, It was was only after a long line of you treating me this way that I responded in a sinful way myself. Self-pity uh, is another one that they mention. You feel sorry for yourself. You know, why are you in these situations? Why do you have these particular temptations over and over again? Why why have things turned out for you the way uh, that they have? And sometimes uh, you want others to feel sorry for you too. And uh, maybe that's not necessarily a bad thing. You do need others to to help and come alongside you, but sometimes we can... Um, uh, take the self-pity in directions that uh, are not healthy. Uh, fear is a, is a sixth one they mention. Um, we shrink back in fear. We spin out worst-case scenarios about the future. We believe our lives are ruined. Uh, we, If it's a particular struggle we have, uh, we think oh, this is just a mountain that's that's too difficult to move. It will never be able to be moved. I can never overcome this. And uh, I can speak from experience on many of these things. Uh, I've had struggles in my life, I've had struggles in my life that feel that way, uh, mountains that cannot be moved. And uh, I would say for some of those kinds of things, uh, I still battle them. But I've I've lived long enough with Jesus to know as well that there are some things, I've had some mountains in my life that seemed completely unmovable. I could not even begin to see how they could ever be different than they were. And uh, there's one particular difficulty, a struggle I was having a few years ago, some questions that I had, some doubts that I had that I weren't sure I would ever be able to overcome. They just seemed unmovable completely unmovable. And uh, as I stand here today, um, I can say that um, that those particular struggles and questions are, are gone from my life. Now, it doesn't mean I, I don't still have wars that I wage. Absolutely, I do. But those particular battles that seemed completely immovable, I look back with wonder at the grace of God at how He um, brought me out of some of those things and uh, helped me see some things in ways that, that I couldn't see at the time. Um, you know, so it's, it's encouraging to say, when I, what, it, what it does for me now is it encourages me to say, hey, I've got this mountain in my life right now, and, st- and instead of fearing that it's a mountain that can never be moved, I've seen this happen in the past. It's hard for me to see right now how um, I'm gonna get out of this mess or how I'm gonna overcome this problem or, or whatever, but I've seen before how God can do things that uh, that, I weren't, that I was not able to see before. And how many times has that happened in Scripture? I mean, you know, there are so many, there are so many stories in Scripture that, s- that seem to be where the promises of God are completely hanging by a thread, or maybe even less than a thread. Maybe, maybe they seem like they're broken off entirely, you know? And yet time and time again... Uh, God always showed himself to keep his word. Sometimes it seemed like a long, long time, hundreds of years. Sometimes people died before they ever saw the resolution to their problem. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 is about, isn't it? That, that great hall of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11 is all about stories of people who were looking for something that they never got to see in their lifetime, but they trusted in God and even still. They were looking for a city that is to come. And even though they didn't see the overcoming of their present situation, many of them were, were killed and persecuted and sawn into, And Moses never actually stepped foot in the promised land. Uh, yet God was still faithful. Uh, you know, so it, it may be sometimes we encounter things in our lives that... Uh, we never finally see a resolution to. You know, does that mean that God is unfaithful? Uh, quite the opposite. And I think, I think Scripture is relentlessly doing this. You know, think about if you were Joseph. <laughs> uh, you not only had been sold into slavery by your brothers, and then you are um, misrepresented by Potiphar's wife and put in prison wrongfully, and then after uh, quite some time in prison, you, you know, you interpret the dreams of the, of the cupbearer and the baker, and, and you plead with them to, you know, tell the king uh, what has happened, and then they forget. And there you sit. So what do you do if you're Joseph? Oh, pity me, is God really there? Where has he gone? But you see the trajectory of the whole story there in Genesis is showing us that not only is God there, but he's actually been planning this whole thing from the start, hasn't he? And the stories are all like that in Scripture. So in the midst of our circumstances, we feel like, where is God? What is going on? This can never be fixed This is hanging by a thread, or worse, it's hopeless, you know? And God, after hundreds and hundreds of years sometimes, uh, it seems, he always shows himself faithful to uphold us and to keep us. And then the last one they mention is despair here. All of the above things can lead us to despair. We don't think we can ever change. We don't believe God is with us or can help us. Life becomes dark and hopeless so those are seven wrong ways that we respond to the heat now the next thing we want to point out here is to say when we are struggling with these things um, one of the first things that we want to always do is to look at what's What's going on in the heart? Because sin uh, always, sin always begins in the heart and not from the external, external circumstances. As we've been saying, the external circumstances might be difficult, but the external circumstances never cause our sin. They don't cause our, um, our failures in the fight those sins and those failures always arise out of the heart uh, first. So um, I have a a number of scriptures we can mention here and just for the sake of time, I'm I'm not going to mention all of these but um, maybe just a couple here. Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 verses 20 through 23 and here is where Uh, Jesus has already said, um, well, let me just read verse 15 of Mark chapter seven. Jesus has already said this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So in other words, that's just a way of saying there's nothing external that can come to us that defile our hearts or that cause our sin. It's only what comes out of us that defiles us. So down in verse 20, Jesus said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So when we are dealing with struggles that we have to sin or temptation to sin, and oftentimes our reaction is to blame others, to blame our circumstances, those kinds of things, one of the first steps to change when we're talking about change in this battle that we're fighting, is recognizing the ways that this is actually something coming from my heart when I fail here. It's not to say the circumstances are difficult. We're not belittling those. The circumstances may very well be difficult. But when we respond to those in sin, it's not because of the circumstances. It's because of something going on in our hearts. I'll just give you a personal example uh, when I get upset with my kids, which I do sometimes, far more than I care to admit, uh, I don't think it will be wrong to say I get angry at my kids sometimes. Uh, sometimes, you know, you'll hear people say that, uh, some, we like to use the word frustrated, I'm frustrated with my kids, you know. And uh, I think it was one of the trips who said this one time that we ought to remove that word frustrated from our category and call it what it really is. It's anger. You know, Uh, frustration is a softer way to put it. Um, But I stop sometimes and realize what's causing me to be angry with my kids right now. And it may very well be true that my kids are living out of their own sinful hearts. They are... uh, Um, being unloving toward each other. They are um, doing the same thing for the thousandth time that I've asked them not to do, you know. Haven't I told you a thousand times already uh, that this is not uh, good for you? And when I'm really honest in those moments, when I... Uh, am tempted to be angry or when I do get angry at them for those things, um, it's probably not false for me to say a hundred times out of a hundred, there's something selfish going on in my heart that's causing this. Again, it's not to say their behavior is not truly wrong, but my response to their behavior, uh, if it is sinfully angry is something that's flowing out of my own selfishness. I'm tired, I don't want to be dealing with this right now. You know, uh, I came home from a long day and the last thing I want to do is uh, be dealing with a, a fight between my kids or, you know, didn't I ask you to um, clean your room or whatever. And, and so, instead of sometimes responding uh, in a way that trusts God, uh, Proverbs 15.1, you know, the anger only stirs up more problems. The soft answer uh, puts away wrath. Then uh, if I respond in a way that is not good, then a 100 times out of a 100, it's because of some selfish desire in me of not wanting to deal with this or something like that. And I use that in the, as an example from me but for you, it may be um, any other kind of thing. When, when sin happens, when we don't uh, fight the battle and when we're losing the battle or failing in the battle or whatever, the first question we should often be asking is, what's going on in my heart? What kind of longings do I have in my heart that are causing this. It's always some longing for something else, something something besides God, something for self that causes me to sin in whatever way that I sin. It is a longing of the heart that does this first. All sin that has ever happened has been this way. You know, what was it for Adam and Eve in the garden that caused this? They were they got to the place where they were distrusting the goodness of God, and their hearts began to long for other things. Uh, They were longing not only for fleeting pleasures, like the fruit that they were tasting, even though God had commanded them not to do it, but they were longing also to uh, make their own decisions. In life, you know, become wise in their own eyes, which is what Scripture says from start to finish is a problem, you know, everywhere you go. Doing what's right in our own eyes, it's always a longing of the heart to run things the way we want to run them or to desire things that are aside from what God has called us to. Uh, Those are the things that always lead us to sin. It's always a, a heart-longing. The, uh, the way the Gospel of John puts it, John chapter three, when it talks about sin, uh, it says, uh, this is John 3:19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So notice what John is saying there, what Jesus is saying there about sin. Sin is not simply uh, choosing to do the wrong thing. Sin always flows from loving the darkness rather than the light. You see, it's a heart. It's, a, it's, it's the loves of the heart that lead to sin. And then, uh, uh, let me just mention this one, James chapter four. Last one on this. Uh, James chapter four, he mentions... Again, how the heart's desires are what cause um, sin to always happen. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it the external circumstances? Well, the other person is doing something wrong. What James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire... You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So in other words, what James is saying, and you you could apply this not just to fights and quarrels, but any kind of sin, again. It comes from passions warring within us and desiring something that we don't have or coveting something that we don't have. Always. Sin always comes from that, from the heart. Okay, so, um, since our time is up, let me quickly uh, go, let me me finish up with a passage from Colossians chapter three. So, if we're to ask then, how should we a fight in the midst of these battles of the heart. What kinds of steps can we take to fight? And I've already mentioned a, a couple of things that we can do. First, we can recognize the already of what Christ has accomplished. Second, second, recognize that this is a fight. Okay, so just recognizing that it's. A fight in this life is going to be part of the battle too instead of ignoring that and thinking it will go away. A third thing that I have mentioned is to say when we're tempted to sin to recognize that it's a heart issue, first and foremost, within us, not blaming others or uh, shifting the blame, but, but asking ourselves what's going on in the heart. And by the way, on pages... Uh, pages 25 and 26 of this little book, there are 20 questions that they ask about the heart. Um, Kinds of questions we can ask ourselves in these temptation. For example, what am I loving right now? What am I loving in my heart that's causing me to struggle with this sin so much? That would be a very enlightening question to think about because if we can realize what it is we're loving then that's going to indicate to us what is motivating our sin. Um, So that's one question among 20. They go through a whole list of questions here that could be helpful to ask. But I think Colossians 3 here gives us some help as well. And we don't have time, so let me just list a few things that Colossians 3 gives us. First thing I'll say about Colossians 3 is it lives in this already but not yet reality. Reality. Notice at the beginning of Colossians 3, verse 1, Paul says, "...if then you have been raised with Christ." You have already been raised with Christ. Then he says, "...seek the things that are above." So again, right there in one sentence, you could say, Paul, are you nuts? I've already been raised with Christ, but I still need to seek the things that are above. Paul's answer is yes. You're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. As Ephesians puts it, as well, but we still, in this world, live in this world for now, and so we still need to seek um, those things. So the first thing I'll say about this is one answer Paul gives us here about how to fight the battle is, I think Paul comes along here and he just says, "Sometimes you just need to kill something, okay? So yes, we we recognize that if we make any progress in sanctification or change, it is by the grace of God. That is true. It's always true. We can't do it on our own. But that does not mean we don't labor to do something. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I worked harder than all the other apostles, yet it was not I but the grace of God. Again, is Paul crazy? He's not crazy. He's, re- he's recognizing a foundational truth. It's all by the grace of God, yes, but that didn't mean I didn't roll up my sleeves and work harder than all the other apostles. And this same thing applies to dealing with sin and trying to change. We can't always just be, Lord, why have you not taken care of this? Why have you not taken care of this? What we need to do is get on our knees and say, Lord, I'm, I'm struggling with this. I'm failing at this. It looks like a mountain. I can't move it. I need your help. I need your grace. I need your spirit. I need all these things from you. And then we need to get up off our knees and we need to slash and burn sometimes. What is it that is, cause, that is keeping us from the change that we need? Well, sometimes we just need to kill it. Je- like when Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, did he mean that literally? Or if your right eye causes you to sin, uh, gouge it out. Well, he probably didn't mean it literally because if your right eye causes you to sin and you gouge it out, you still have your left one, right? And so I, th- I think what Jesus is doing there is, is trying to show us the seriousness of this. Sometimes you just have to, you have to cut something off. I remember a story a, a number of years ago I read by Billy Graham. He would go somewhere to preach a, uh, a gospel crusade and I heard this story where he walked into the hotel room of where he was staying for this week of the crusade, and he realized that the TV was not only plugged into the wall, but the the cord was behind the wallpaper. And Billy Graham went in and he took the cord to this TV and he just ripped it out of the wall and ripped ripped it all off and ripped off the wallpaper. And the reason he did this is because he said later is because um, I recognize there are some temptations and distractions from what I'm here to do. And I'm not suggesting that that's exactly the action we all need to take. It might be different for each one of us. But what I am saying is sometimes if there's a particular battle we're fighting and losing, it may be just because we have not cut something off. Uh, I'm trying to grow zoysia in my lawn. And I'm realizing sometimes that... uh, Sometimes spreading, spreading a weed killer doesn't always do the trick. There are some patches sometimes I have to get down on my hands and knees sometimes and pull them one by one. And every time I do that, I think this is the way sin is for me. I can't just fix this by some general weed killer. I got to get down on my hands and knees with this sin and I got I to pull it out. I got to unplug it. I got to rip it out. I got to cut off the hand. I got to gouge out the eye. I got to slash and burn in order to make this happen. And Paul says that here, doesn't he? Verse five, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. So Paul says don't take any prisoners. If you're battling with this particular thing for a long time, put it to death. And this is not the only place where he says that, by the way. Uh, real quickly, uh, two things, and I'm done. Um, uh, if you go on down, um, I, think, I think Paul does in this, he, he does plead with us to recognize the grace of Christ, okay, in everything. So verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So before we're going to make progress in compassion and kindness and humility, we need to recognize God's grace to us. And he goes on to say here, forgive others as you have been forgiven. So if you're struggling to forgive someone, if that's your particular issue, look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. Look to His grace and then say, how has He treated me? And then I need to extend that same kind of uh, grace to others. A third thing Paul mentions here is is the word of Christ, right? If you look down at verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, okay? So battle sin by killing it, Battle sin by recognizing the grace of Christ that He's already given to you. Battle sin by letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. How did Jesus battle sin? Well, when He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, what did He do? He quoted Scripture. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the most despairing thing in His life, what did He do? He quoted the Psalms most often and you get the sense that the Psalms and the scriptures were coursing through his veins so that even in those most desperate moments, the things that were coming out of his lips were, he was desperate in that wilderness, I think. He was hungry. Those were real temptations. And it was what had been coursing through his veins that came out of his mouth. It was the word of God. Man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. And then finally, I'll just say this from this passage. You get the sense here, I think, that Paul suggests that one of our greatest ways to battle sin is doing it among the body of Christ with others. You can't do this alone. Hebrews chapter 3 says... Sin will drag you away if you don't have others there to encourage you every day. As long as it is called today, you need somebody else and you need the body of Christ and you need others. Notice what he says there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So in other words, we need to be Engaging with one another as Christians and seeking the help of others in the midst of our battle, in the midst of our struggle. We need help. Okay, much more to be said about that stuff, but we got two more weeks. And um, as usual, I have pressed us to the very end. So uh, I don't want to keep you from getting to the service. Um, let me pray for us. And then uh, if you'd like to talk about any of this further, I'm happy to speak with you. Or if you have questions, bring them next time. Don't forget uh, next week, for those of you who came in late, next week we will not have this class because of Easter. So we'll skip next week and then we'll do the the following two weeks. The last week of April and the first week of May. Okay? All right. Thanks so much for your patience. Father, thank you for your word. We would have no hope and no help in pressing through temptation and struggle if you did not... Give us this help. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn from your word this morning, to remember your grace in the past that gives us hope, and also to remember that we're still living in this broken world and we're going to be waging war. And I, I pray, Lord, that you would give us strength to make progress, to bring our sin and struggle to you. I pray, Lord, that you give us strength to put to death sin in the body. I pray that you would give us strength to treasure your word, to let your word dwell in us richly. I pray, Lord, for your help uh, in not hiding ourselves from others when we are struggling, but, Lord, pulling uh, others around us and being honest and open with them and seeking their help, Lord, and seeking their accountability, seeking their prayers, seeking their encouragement. And uh, Lord, help us to avail ourselves of all of these means to make progress against the, uh, the temptations that we continually struggle with in our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash U.